name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. I am Sean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier pro-journalistical podcast where we stick to the list for better or worse. And pro the descendants. And pro the descendants, sorry. You're slipping, Harley. Yes, I am. Uh, this week we are talking about something a bit different, something a little more close space, close time, based on a play. It is Carnage, directed by Roman Polanski, as the movie re- reminds us twice as it starts. Uh, but before we get into that, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Sure thing. Uh, I have only a handful of movies this week. The first of them is a movie called The Divide. It's a post-apocalyptic thriller directed by Xavier Jens. It's set in New York, and literally the first shot of this movie is nuclear missiles hitting Manhattan. And uh, the residents of an apartment building manage to get to the basement of the building and seal themselves inside. And, of course, they can't leave, because if they do, they'll just get radiation sickness and die. Um, So they've got to survive down there with each other. But as time goes by, people crack and resort to violence and mania. Uh, This is a deeply unpleasant movie, but that is by design. It has an incredible opening. Like, it wastes no time. I mean, it's... They spent half their budget, by the looks of it, just on making that opening sequence. It, it really is quite striking um, and uh, definitely worth looking up, I think, even if you've got no intention of seeing the movie itself. Um, but it, it's a dynamite premise for an indie movie or even a play to just have them all in this one set for almost the entire thing um, and to just explore the dynamics between the characters. Uh, it does experiment with some bigger, wackier ideas at the start. You get people outside in hazmat suits that are briefly a threat for the survivors and, you know, hints that there's some sort of, like, larger, weirder conspiracy thing, government-type thing going on. Um, but the movie, frankly, forgets about that almost as soon as it brings it up, so it's it's doesn't need to be there. Um, it, it quickly settles into uh, ye old Lord of the Flies sort of narrative and um there's a couple of moments of subversion of that but not enough it's it's a wobbly script as well but they have a very strong cast that's the big thing it's got going for it is that these actors and actresses are completely committed and um they do a good job it's it's intriguing as a powder keg scenario but as the film goes on it sort of lapses into just depravity it's just the worst impulses of its characters depicted on screen, and that appears to be the point. Um, But that needs purpose beyond just the depiction of it for it to be dramatically interesting. At a certain point, it's just depiction. It it has no meaning. Um, There is kind of a post-9-11 sort of fear allegory, the idea that this attack could be coming from anywhere and anyone, and terrorism and all sorts of things, like people living on the edge, not trusting their neighbours. That is present, but it's it's a muddled allegory. It's messy. They don't do enough with it. And by the third act, it's just kind of a slideshow of atrocity of watching these people do really nasty and revolting things to each other. I mean, on on the one hand, you got stuff like you know Saw and and movies like that that are depictions of violence, but this is different. It's like psychological and emotional violence, which um, is of a different type buries its way into your head a lot more as a viewer uh 
it does redeem itself somewhat with with a genuinely excellent finale. Um, it's very dramatic and very effective and uh, bleak, um, but uh, it's it's also got a quite strong Jean-Pierre Taïb score, um, which uh, lends some real weight to some of the more successful moments. But yeah, I can't really recommend it to people. Um, just know that you're in for a bit of a well, not a bit of a, but but quite a confronting film if you decide to watch it. Uh, I next saw uh, The Iron Lady, which is also about a sociopath. Um, it's it's a biopic. This time it's Maggie Thatcher. This uh, it's a biopic directed by Philida Lloyd, um, the director of Mamma Mia, <laughs> and uh, in it, an elderly dementia-addled Margaret Thatcher, played by Meryl Streep reflects on her life and time as the United Kingdom's first female prime minister. This is a movie that is peculiarly timid in its presentation of not only its central character, but in the events that its character lived through. It seems so nervous about being political. Uh, and You're a movie about Margaret Thatcher. Yes, exactly. Like, um, there was, I forget who wrote it, but I did see a quote in a review. It says, just about everyone has an opinion about Margaret Thatcher, except apparently the people who made this movie. (laughs) Um, It's so, it pussyfoots around everything so much and seems so reluctant to delve into anything regarding policy and the impact of policy and it's chosen to instead focus on the uh, feminist angle. You know, the fact that she was a very strong female leader in a period where that was virtually unheard of. Um, and at the same time, pulled the ladder up behind her. Sure. And yeah, it, it's got this weird mix of whitewashing with perhaps the vaguest sense of criticism about not her policies, but her somewhat authoritarian approach. Um, and the result is very milk toast. It's interesting. It's still interesting, but only because Thatcher herself is interesting. She is an interesting person with an interesting personality and point mm. of view who pursued her objectives in an interesting way. I'm talking purely from a historical perspective. I'm sure I would have found it nightmarish to be a uh, English citizen during that period, but um, it's fascinating to look back on, and that's the stuff that keeps it going. It has the usual biopic issues. It just has too little time to to tell too complicated of a story. There are just too many things that happened. You know, there was an assassination attempt on her. There was the Falklands War. There was you know years of social and economic policy that had a a fairly disastrous effect on on a lot Minus of people. strikes, exactly all that stuff, and it just doesn't have time to cover it. Like Margaret Thatcher's premiership is a period of UK history that is worthy of an extended miniseries. Mm. Um, the the most tr- intriguing element is the framing device because almost as much time as you spend during the actual prime ministership of Margaret Thatcher, you spend in this fictionalized narrative of her in contemporary or then contemporary when the movie came out 2011 2012 as an old woman you know just a couple of years before she died living with dementia and hallucinating seeing her dead husband played by uh, Jim Broadbent um, and that's 
I find that questionable, morally, depicting that about a woman who was still alive, no matter what I think of her. But uh, it is, you know, dramatically quite interesting and quite compelling. And the way that it presents Dennis, her husband, is almost like a, a mixture of, you know, an image of him appearing to her. But there's also times when he feels almost like some sort of cosmic troll that's just like poking her. Um, and that's kind of a interesting dynamic. It it works better than when they try and make the relationship the spine of the movie in the flashback stuff, um, because it just feels forced and unnecessary. I, I believe I said it in... I've said it before talking about biopics, you know, we're never interested in the spouse, you know? I'm not interested in Dennis. Dennis did mm. fuck all, <laughs> you know? He just was her husband. Why am I spending all this time hearing about her when I could be hearing about all of these much more interesting things that she did as Prime Minister? But the whole movie is is held up by Meryl Streep. She is genuinely fantastic. It's an unreal performance. It's so kind of you know, weirdly, creepily accurate in voice, in tone, in approach to, um, you know, all of the clips of Margaret Thatcher you've seen. She won the her third Oscar for this, and you can see why. Um, yeah, it is, it is interesting as a sort of time capsule look at that, uh, that period of English history. Certainly it has a glossiness and a, and a kind of, like, expensiveness that, you know, makes it still valuable to watch and interesting to watch but um i don't think it would be made the same way now i don't think that people would have allowed it to be like i don't think that audiences would have responded in such a way you know i think that they would have really raked it over the coals for its presentation which is not you know don't get me wrong that our view on margaret thatcher is far from the settled point of view on margaret thatcher there are many many fans of margaret thatcher out there but in this era of polarized politics i think it it has become so you know the the different factions of politics politics have become so far apart that i just don't think that it would have gotten away with such a lazy political take um it wouldn't have been able to ignore it and i think that Either they would have leaned into what the creative community's general consensus is, which is not a pro-Thatcher point of view, or they would have just not made the movie, um, which is, you know, in some ways distressing. I'm not sure I like that that's the fact. You mm. know, I think that the movie doesn't have its teeth, doesn't have teeth that could have made it better. But I'm also very uneasy with the idea of like, well, let's not, of having the, what the the story that the filmmakers wanted to tell not be able to be made for fear of public opprobrium that troubles me also i i actually talked about um a movie that the bbc did a while ago called margaret which was sort of about the downfall of margaret thatcher her last years as pm and i i think that um that's probably the better one to seek out even though it doesn't have nearly as strong a central performance in it um but uh Thirdly and finally for this week in terms of films, I saw Coriolanus. It is a political thriller directed by Rafe Fiennes, and it is based on the play of the same name by William Shakespeare. Uh, It follows a Roman general named Caius Martius, played by Fiennes. He beats back the neighbouring Volsky and is uh, named Coriolanus, a special sort of 
title for being a war hero, and he's nominated to become the Council of Rome, which would basically give him tremendous political power. But he's kind of a fascist, and uh, the people won't accept it, and so they exile him. And he does not take that well, and so he actually goes to the Volsci, these enemies of Rome, who he beat back as the Roman general, and joins them and becomes their general and stages a march on Rome. Uh... There's a lot of debate among historians as to whether Coriolanus, or Caius Martius rather, was a real guy or not. There are references to him, but there are no contemporary references from the time that he was actually supposed to have been alive during. There are definitely other characters in this who are from real life, but whether Mm. this guy actually lived and did this stuff is a bit up in the air from what I can tell. It might be one of those stories... That was told around the time about... It might have been like an allegory that was told back in Rome, warning people about figures like that. Mm. Um, but um, it, it's hard to tell. Well, didn't work out for them, did it? <laughs> so, <laughs> no, it um, didn't. But uh, Fiennes has, has reset it to present day, and he has created this sort of strange, like, 20th century, like, 70s 80s maybe Mm. era rome with you know tvs and news cameras and um cars and things and it's given it a very interesting very interesting vibe the production design of it the aesthetic is very good and and the um the script is just cut right down to the bone it's so focused in on this really tight rise and fall narrative um following Coriolanus through his uh his journey essentially and it uses the introduction of TVs into the narrative as a shortcut it blends a lot of these different monologues and extended scenes together bits of dialogue together as news reports to cover huge amounts of ground very quickly which is a sensible way i think to cut a three-hour shakespeare play down to i mean it's a it's a two-hour movie thereabouts but i'm like there are in terms of script just pure script it's probably more you know an hour and a half because Mm. fines has inserted a lot of attempts to expand things out and to depict things and really do all these war sequences, and I just didn't need it. Um, There's especially a lot of it in the first half, but almost all of it is a failure. It's incredibly dull, Um, and it's just kind of like, you know, it's like Black Hawk Down, but monotonous. Um, And I get what he was trying to do. I get that he was trying to sort of draw draw the the Coriolanus story into more present-day concerns or then present-day concerns with, you know, war on terror, um, authoritarian leaders, uh, stuff like that. But that didn't make it any more interesting to watch. Um, the Volsky also could use a lot more focus. Um, I admit I have not seen an unabridged version of the play, so I don't know whether it's a fault of the abridging or not that they seem like such flat characters but they they do need more time um it is better as a story when it's just playing the hits when it's just doing shakespeare um and it works so well because of its fantastic cast there's fines who is phenomenal but there's also vanessa redgrave and brian cox and they're equally brilliant uh gerard butler turns up as a volsky general 
Um, he is better at Shakespeare than he is at singing. Uh, although I will say that it is a waste of Jessica Chastain as Coriolanus's wife. Um, although, to be fair to Coriolanus, this was not really, like, she wasn't really Jessica Chastain yet. She was more mostly an indie movie actress at this mm. point. So uh, her being a fifth-billed supporting character with very little to do doesn't seem as egregious as it would be now, I suppose. Um, but there's a lot of effort spent in the adaptation making naturalistic dialogue, really cutting down the naughtiest monologues to have it be really clean and concise language in a way that I think fits in this sort of mercenary and, um, and bleak story that this is telling. Um, but does, I admit, kind of, you know, I'm not thrilled because I one of the reasons I like Shakespeare is the language, so... It affects the lyricism of it. Yeah, yeah, and, and the best moments of the film are the moments where it gets the most talky. So uh, it would have been, yeah, it would be interesting to see what this play looks like unabridged. But um, really the biggest success is Martius. He's just a fascinating character. He's incredibly interesting to watch in the sense that he's not a hero. He's not even an anti-hero. He is a villain. He is, he is a fascist that the people, quite rightly, reject i mean they're sort of manipulated into rejecting him by these unscrupulous politicians but even these unscrupulous politicians seem very concerned about what coriolanus <laughs> might do if he they're were right to yeah they're right that's the thing <laughs> and it, it creates such a interesting fascinating little portrait of political power and the abuse of political power and from and, what i know of the play it's fully aware that Coriolanus is a bad dude. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, it, it's very interesting to watch in t from the modern context, but it's equally interesting to think about it when you think about Shakespeare writing it at the time he was writing it, because, uh, you know, obviously the people were very fond of Shakespeare plays, just, you know, common people, but he also was a big... Um, big hit with the nobles and with the royalty, and he would perform in, in royal courts and things. So... Watching it from that perspective in an era where probably the, the, the people in charge were more like Coriolanus than not, um, the whole conversation of uh, fascism bad, democracy good, is very interesting to watch in terms of, of how of the environment that Shakespeare was writing, in it, writing it originally. Um, the scheming nobles and senators, the easily led public versus the vicious authoritarian. It's like he's it's like he's threading a needle. Like mm. he's lecturing the nobles as carefully as he can without getting his head cut off, you know? <laughs> um and it, it's quite a, a peculiar dance to watch. It's a, it's very entertaining. But yeah, it's definitely worth watching if uh if you're interested so that is me done for the week. What about you guys? What have you been watching? All right, so we've got one movie to talk about this week. It is a prequel to one of my favorite movies of just one moment. Uh, 2019. This is a prequel to Pet Cemetery called Pet Cemetery Bloodlines. This is this was made to be the sequel to the 2019 version prequel. of Pet Cemetery. The prequel of. Uh, prequel of, yes. And it is written by the same guy. 
Uh, so, Pet Cemetery Bloodlines is directed by Lindsay Anderson Beer. In 1969, a young Judd Crandall, played here by Jackson White, playing the younger version of John Lithgow, has dreams of leaving his hometown of Ludlow, Maine, behind. The Vietnam War is in full swing, and conscription is under effect. Terrified of the war, but still feeling a call to serve, Judd and his girlfriend Norma, played by Natalie Allen Lind, have elected to join the Peace Corps. These plans get arrested, however, when Timmy Bateman, played by Jack Mulhern, arrives back from Vietnam. He is different. Changed. Judd believes that this is shell shock, but the truth is far darker. Timmy Bateman died in the jungles of war-torn Vietnam, and his father Bill Bateman, played by David Duchovny, has done what is considered a no-no for a resident of Ludlow. He took his son's body out to the land past the local pet cemetery and buried him. What came back was not Timmy, but a dark force puppeting his meat suit, much to everyone's dismay. To be fair, the Ramon song warning folks about how poor an idea that is wouldn't come out for another 20 years, but other locals such as Judd's father, Dan Crandall, played by Henry Thomas, are well aware of the sweet-smelling lies that the bitter ground past the deadfall whispers to the residents of Ludlow. Now Judd, Norma, and friends, Manny and Donna Rivers, played by Forrest Goodluck and Isabella LeBlanc, are about to be learned what will be Judd's new favorite sentence in the harshest possible manner. Sometimes I'm about to learn better. you up real good. <laughs> That's the language they would use in this. Uh, John, why don't you say your short piece about Pet Cemetery bloodlines? This could have been nastier, and I appreciate what it's doing. We're going back to see the story of Judd and all of that that, that entails. It's not a clean prequel. Mm. It changes some things, and it's it's not exactly a prequel to the remake. It's a reimagining of the story of Tim Bateman and Judd and the other people in the town of Ludlow. It does a lot with the setting that this is during wartime, and Judd gets put through a war of his own. The, fi the final sequence in this movie, he's in the forest, he's in a swampy area, he's trying to hide from things that are have dug tunnels, he's... One of his friends gets caught up in a mine. Like, build up this idea of... He didn't go to Vietnam, but he still had a Vietnam experience, so to speak. And what I find in also interesting is the fact that this is a town whose original sin is based around the Pet cemetery and mistakes that were made back when white settlers came to the area. Because all of the native people, or the vast majority of the native people, understood what the Pet cemetery was, and they ditched. They, they understood that the place was bad, so they left. And you get a little bit of that here as well with some of the people who have remained donna and manny are native american people and they are dealing with the fact that they are stuck in ludlow too and they want to get out but they don't have the same kinds of ways to get out as everyone else does and you are also dealing with the fact that the town itself understands what the pet cemetery is and They've got safeguards up, but these safeguards start to fail. The acting is pretty solid across the board. Henry Thomas is really good as Judd Crandall's father. What's the name of the guy who plays Tim Baderman? A uh, guy who plays Baderman, Jack Mulhern. Yeah, he did a good job too at threading the needle between 
the person he was and the thing that's puppeting him. Mm. And I really liked how they show us what Judd was talking about when Judd would say they would s- the people who came back would say things, secret things that would burrow under your skin, things like that. And I appreciated that, but this movie didn't go for the throat as much as I would have liked. There is a significant lack of resurrected animals, which I think is a big deal, I think. And it's part of Judd's backstory that he does, that his dog was buried there and that it got resurrected. And we don't hear anything about that. So that seemed like a missed opportunity. Yeah, and the vast majority of the deaths happen off screen, which I think was a shame. I think this story could have been a lot more interesting and go more into depth if it was like I thought it was going in a TV series, like a mini series. But I was surprised to find out that it was indeed just a movie. But all in all, I had a good time with this. Uh, I had a pretty, I had a pretty good time with Pet Cemetery Bloodlines. I'm a big Stephen King fan, and as I've mentioned before, uh, Pet Cemetery 2019 was one of my favorite movies of that year. Uh, it is one of two movies that has legitimately terrified me. Uh, which is Pet Cemetery, Pet Cemetery 2019 and the first version of Pet Cemetery. The original, uh, yeah. Particularly the stuff with uh, Zelda. Zelda. Uh, that stuff always just gets to me. Plus, I find the idea of the Pet Cemetery compelling. It's such a interesting idea to literalize grief that way. Um, Ice Nine Kills have a fantastic song called Funeral Derangements based on Pet Cemetery, and I. I Highly recommend giving that a listen to. Um, so Pet Cemetery is near and dear to me. I love the concept. I love the characters. And of course, 2019, it had John Lithgow playing Judd Crandall. And John Lithgow is fantastic in that role. So going back to a prequel for this had always interested me. Because part of the special features on the 2019, one of the promotional things, was just John Lithgow walking through that uh, dark wood set that they built telling us the story of Timmy Bateman, and that was fantastic. Uh, This takes a bit of a deviation from the story told there. It's expanded to make room for feature length, and I think some ways that compromise it, and in other ways that expand it. Gives us some more characters, it gives us Henry Thomas as Judd's father, gives us Norma, uh, Judd's future wife, but girlfriend here, and it also gives us more time with uh, Bill Bateman, played by David Duchovny. Uh, who's pretty strong here. I like Not it. too much more time, but more time. No, but it's good to see him here. Yeah. His characters wear the theme of grief and loss and the willingness to hold on carries through. He's the through line with that messaging. I love the performance from Jackson White here as young Judd. Judd Crandall, in both versions, both John Lithgow's Judd Crandall and the original Judd, what was his name? Uh, Fred Gwynn. Both Lithgow and Gwyn were very deliberate with their delivery, very slow, methodical speaking, um, and that's carried on by White here, and that's very much appreciated because Judd is not a very excitable person. He's very st- solid, very sturdy, and he takes his time with things, and he takes his time to speak, which is fantastic here. I really love that element that uh, White brought into his portrayal of Judd. And I also really dig the 
visual elements here, I think the director here has done a really good job with catching the tone of Pet Cemetery. And one of the visual elements that they've added is the Wendigo, the dark spirit um, in the Foul Land Beyond the Deadfall, it warps things. Not only does it whisper to the town of Ludlow, when it gets his fingers in and has someone that it's possessing, it changes the space itself. You see that um, in some of the fields, the, like the field of sunflowers out the back of the river's house, the, inside, the um, inside of the flower has started to spiral. In a very Junji Ito way. And spirals keep appearing everywhere. Uh, Donna Rivers, she starts getting dreams, like dreams of telling her to create animal masks, because as they explain here, the pet cemetery itself, uh, where they bury their pets, was created so that the animal spirits could protect them uh, from the Wendigo. And that is something that the the Mi'kmaq tribe understood before they decided, this ground ain't worth it, and left. And what the eventual town of Ludlow continued to understand, burying the pets there holds a very specific important function. Um... The whole cast is really strong. White, Lind, Good Luck, and LeBlanc are fantastic. Henry Thomas is really, really good too. I love how it seems that Henry Thomas's modern day career is just as a horror movie guy. Yeah. And I really like that from him. I've really enjoyed him in everything I've seen him in recently, mostly in his Flanagan-related work. Uh, one of the stars of the show has got to be Jack Mulhern as Timmy Bateman. He's doing a lot there's you could see flashes of the original timmy and there were moments where whatever's possessing his body is trying to learn is trying to learn how to pretend to be a person it's almost like it's trying to learn to walk before it can run and that's some really interesting stuff too i do agree with john that a lot of the kills being off-screen really hampers it, really stops it from being as brutal as it needs to be. We get no scenes as gnarly as in the first uh, version of Pet Cemetery, where Gage slices the Achilles and mm. cripples Judd. We get nothing as brutal as that, which it is a mistake, I find, because Pet Cemetery has always been one of King's scariest works. Um, I do like it a little more than I think John did, uh, I had a great time with this. Great expansion on the original Timmy Bateman uh, subplot in the original novel. Uh, have you heard that Guillermo del Toro has always wanted to do a version of Pet Cemetery? No, I, I say let him. He's always wanted to do so, and I think I would love to see a stop motion version of Pet Cemetery done by del Toro and his team. Yeah, uh, I think that could be something very, very interesting and very, very gnarly. Because there's so much that can be mined with the concept of the Pet Cemetery and how it uh, is part of Stephen King's expanded universe that he's created in his books. Uh, this didn't get a very good reception from people, but I quite like it. Uh, so that is what we've seen within the week. Lawson has a pith take. I do indeed. Uh, oh. I have gone to the theatre and I have seen another theatre production. This time, it is a show called Viet Gone. Um, it I've is, heard about this. It is a historical dramedy written by uh, Ki Nguyen, 
and it's set following the fall of Saigon at the end of the Vietnam War. A Vietnamese soldier, Quang, played by Will Tran, is uh, choppered out, well, choppers himself out, covering, carrying survivors, and is now a refugee in America, but he desperately wants to get back because his wife and kids are still in Vietnam, and he has no clue what happened to them or what's happening to them now. Um, he tries to figure out a way back, um, but he strikes up a romance with a fellow refugee in camp, um, the acerbic Tong, played by Christy Ngu, and he struggles with uh, torn loyalties and the loss, not only of his country, but of his family as well. This is a, a creative and effective way of exploring complicated topics. It's a blend of genres and, and of forms. It's, it's kind of a musical. It stops every now and then for musical numbers. It's got this big rotating set. Um, that turns around and changes and really just gives a lot of, of movement to the piece. Um, there are images projected onto the backdrop of the set and it jumps back and forwards through time as well. It, it's sort of constantly playing with form and with formula. It begins with an actor playing um, Ki Nguyen, the playwright, coming out and basically introducing things. And he appears throughout play as well sort of as this kind of a narrator but also as sort of a guide into the interesting little aesthetic choices that the show makes um the final scene breaks the fourth wall entirely i mean it's playing with the form of its medium in a really fascinating way it starts very slow though it's got a lot of balls in the air and it handles them clumsily but it much improves as it builds up ahead of steam and really gets into the meat of things. Um, the second half, particularly after the intermission, pulls it all together. And it's hugely effective as a new perspective. Well, not a new perspective, but a perspective that will seem new to a lot of Westerners. Viet Gone, the title, I mean, it has a literal meaning. Obviously, these are characters mourning the loss of their home and their country. But it's also about the fact that Vietnam's identity is gone in the West. It's been sacrificed to the narrative of American empire. That when you say Vietnam now, in a lot of contexts, your mind jumps to American soldiers in the jungle. Yeah. Um, and the actual reality of that country and its uh, what its citizens went through is given over to the... Basically, the trauma of that civil war has been absorbed mm. into the trauma of American soldiers. And that's a really interesting thing to start to pick apart, which is what this does. It's It centers, um, it really unpacks the, the fact that so much of our current cultural memory of the Vietnam War centers the American perspective in the sense that you know, there's, it's very much like, well, it was a, it was a quagmire. They should never have gone in. Um, it was just them meddling in other countries' affairs rather than, you know, keeping their nose out of things and staying where they should belong. And they paid the price for it in blood and treasure. But this play brings up the fact that for a lot of people in Vietnam, people on the losing side, people who eventually ended up becoming refugees, they were actually really glad to see the Americans when they turned up because they were getting killed and their homes were being destroyed. So the the morality of 
or, or the sort of maybe not the morality, but the overwriting of those bits of detail with just the general thing of like America just should have stayed out of it doesn't ring true to some of the characters in this play. And they expressed that because if America had stayed out of it, they'd probably be dead. Um, and it's complicated stuff. You know, that's yeah. stuff with no easy answer and it's stuff with no easy morality to it either. And it's especially meaty from a character perspective as you're spending all of this time with these characters who are trying to contend with family and friends that they've lost, but maybe haven't lost entirely. You know, they don't know whether their families are alive or dead. They are not getting information out. They've got nowhere to go back. They're now living in exile. And... um that is all then bound up in this really interesting sort of like affair at the centre of the story, the the central romance. It's complex and messy, and um, that is something that gives it a lot of power as a as a story and a narrative, um, and it really makes it stand apart. And it does all of that while still being quite funny. I mean, it's not. You know, it's not as funny as some of the other plays that I've seen, but it's amusing consistently. It embraces absurdity. It's pretty well written, too. Humor is is also used politically in a really interesting way. It's used to reclaim the narrative for the Vietnamese. Like, for instance, you know, obviously there's such an awful history in English language media of presenting Asian characters in this incredibly stereotypical manner with, you know, broken English and uh, racial stereotypes and exaggerated accents. This show does exactly the same, only to the American characters. Because the idea is that everything that we're hearing is Vietnamese, um, and all of the characters are speaking Vietnamese. And so when the American characters come onto the the scene and start participating and and talking... um, their Vietnamese is not good, so they speak in in broken uh, sentences, mm. and it's just this garbled mess of um, you know nonsense gibberish, essentially. Like the American, like really exaggerated gung ho American accents, just going stuff like hamburgers, cholesterol, you know that kind mm. of thing. You know, First Amendment, firearms, uh, and uh, the the people who remain eloquent and able to express themselves are the Vietnamese characters, which is a really elegant, funny, and um, an appreciated way of recentering that narrative. Uh, I will say that the dialogue can come with too much affect sometimes. Uh, the word peeps is far too overused uh, without irony. I shouldn't say without irony. I mean, there is kind of an ironic spin to it in the sense that you know the movie is not the movie the 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 play is told in such a way that it's it's appropriating the trappings of american fiction onto its main characters and the style of characters characters as well in another way that's very pointed it's the appropriating of american culture rather than the other way around um but there's parts of it that veer too close to hello fellow kids for my comfort um the the story and the screen and the um the the play the script is smarter than that it's subtler than that it doesn't need to go to that kind of low-hanging fruit 
Um, and I will say that the musical numbers are unnecessary. None of them are particularly memorable, and the emotion of them pale in comparison to the spoken scenes between the characters. But you have a fantastic cast as well in this staging of it, uh, particularly the two leads. You also get an excellent comedy sidekick performance by an actor named Al Ginobella as Quang's perennially horny best friend. Um, but that is a character that gets depth as things goes things go on and, and by the end he has real emotional weight uh he he also played the blue power ranger in power rangers jungle fury so there's that um but the overall cast is very small i think it's uh six or seven people i can't quite remember um i was sitting away back <laughs> uh but they they swap out these people and they play so many different characters. Like there's maybe 20 characters that all of these people are jumping between with the exception of the two leads who are just playing the one character. And um, there's lots of costume changes going on. It makes a very canny use of a small cast. Um, but yeah, it's it's quite strong. I'm glad I went and saw it. I had a lot of fun. And um, it hits in an emotional way. Uh, and if you guys are interested, I can actually, there is no pro shop, but have, I only recently learned learned about this. Um, if you're on Audible, which I know you guys are, you will be able to find um, audio adaptations of a lot of different plays by the Los Angeles Theatre Works. And they do a bunch of these where they will basically do audio versions of their seasons and then uh, insert like... Um, like aud- when you do audio description on movies and things, they just... Every now and then when it really calls for it and they need to describe a piece of stage direction, they will. But, yeah, they've got a bunch of them up there now. Um, like, full credit price. Like, um, you know, I don't know if you've only got so many credits to use, then spending one on an hour and 46 minutes of audio might not be that. But now that Spotify's doing its audiobook push, um, you know, that might be something people can seek out there is a version of Viet gone up there is my long-winded way of getting to that point of information but yes that is my pith take for the week yep so anyone got anything else nope nope so now we will play for you the trailer to carnage following a verbal dispute in brooklyn bridge park zachary cowan armed with a stick struck our son ethan longstreet in the face armed you don't like armed um, Michael, what can we say? Um, carrying, uh, holding, hold, carrying a stick, all right? Carrying, yeah. Carrying a stick. <laughs> if Ethan had broken two of Zachary's teeth, I'm thinking Alan and I might have had more of a knee-jerk reaction. I'm not sure we would see the big picture. Sure you would. She's not telling you the real secret. <laughs> <laughs> Let him taste it. Very good. Mm. Excuse me. Yeah? Undesirable side effects. Basically, you look like you're drunk. <laughs> Do you know what they were arguing about? Ethan wouldn't let Zachary be a part of his gang. Did you know that Ethan had a gang? <laughs> no, but I'm thrilled to hear it. <laughs> yeah. Your son is a maniac. Zachary is not a maniac. Yes, he is. Alan, why are you saying that? He's a maniac. Look, can you hear me now? You better watch it. They're both horrible. What the hell are we doing here? I hope you're kidding. You think my son is a snitch? I don't think anything. Well, well, if you don't think anything, don't say anything. I'm sick to death of it. We were nice to you. We bought tulips. You know, my wife dressed me up as a liberal. Yeah. Nancy, what are you? There. Huh. Oh, my God. Where to go? 
You killed that hamster. What you did to that hamster was wrong. You can't deny it. You're blowing this all out of proportion! I don't get drunk. I feel like I'm gonna vomit again. Huge turn off. Get a couple drinks in her and bam! That was the trailer for Carnage, and this is going to be a short plot summary. Uh, It is a dark comedy directed by Roman Polanski, and it is based on the play God of Carnage by Yasmina Reza. And it takes place entirely in a New York apartment, where two sets of parents gather to resolve a violent dispute between their adolescent sons as amicably as possible. The hosts are Penelope and Michael Longstreet, played by Jodie Foster and John C. Riley, whose son was struck in the face with a stick by the son of Nancy and Alan Cowan, played by Kate Winslet and Christoph Waltz. The foursome try to work something out, but some sniping and passive-aggressive asides quickly expose a gulf of differences between the couples that overtakes the proceedings. As the knives come out, battle lines are drawn, and the meeting becomes anything but civil. So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts on Carnage. Why don't you start us off, Sean? Are you ready? Yep. Three, two, one, go. This kind of movie lives and dies by your co- its cast and its writing. And they've got... And both of them are quite strong here. John C. Riley, uh, Jodie Foster, Christoph Waltz, and Kate Winslet all do a pretty great job at dealing with this dialogue and the shifting battle lines and the small alliances that are made over the course and how those alliances eventually fall apart. And they all do such a good job that it started to give me an anxiety attack. All right, you ready, Harley? Yep. Three, two, one, go. I think I sent a message within the first 15 minutes to the group chat saying that this was unbearable. It was agony to me, Uh, but that just goes to show how well staged and acted this was. This is like a mini play. Of course, it's based on a play. Uh, Lives or dies by its script and actors, but we've got Waltz, Winslet, John C. Riley, and what's his name? Jodie Foster. Jodie Foster here. So we've got nothing to really worry about on that front. I really, really enjoy this movie. I think it's great just watching these people fall apart and turn Mm. into monsters. Um, I think that's very entertaining and a lot of fun. I think it's got a lot of interesting things to say about polite society, the veneer of polite society. Uh, I do think it's incredibly well written. Of course, it inherits that from the play. I do think it is largely extremely well acted too, although I do think that Foster and Riley both have a tendency to do too much sometimes. Mm. Sure. And I, I would go as far as to say that Foster might even be miscast. Mm. Um, but we can talk about that. Uh, I want to ask you, Harley, right off the top, because I did wonder whether it would be a problem for you. How did you cope with the vomiting? I coped fine. See, I would have thought that that would have been something that you would have had an issue with. Because you got like, like all of the... the eating sounds or the mouth sounds that people make, I would have thought that vomiting would have been like a massive, like, no, wasn't, it, I, it's like more the, just end, the, mouth the end sounds. level boss of mouth sounds. No, no, because it all comes out as just a one thing. <laughs> uh, and I, I have anxiety and when I get nervous, I vomit. So I, I'm quite familiar mm. uh, with that experience. So I was just sitting there going, yes, 
Yes, that is what it's like. Um, well, but normally it doesn't particularly bother me in movies when people vomit. Um, did you guys know anything about this movie going in? No. Well, outside of the the, the general cast list and Polanski. Polanski. Mm. We didn't really um, look up anything because. Yes, this is. Uh, we should probably get that out of the way, shouldn't we? That this is uh, directed by Roman Polanski, who is a admitted statutory rapist who has spent the last, what, 40 years now on the run from the law by living in a country that refuses to extradite him back to America to be charged for his crime, um, to the point, of course, where this is actually set in New York, but it is not filmed in New York because <laughs> Certainly not. he is an international fugitive. Uh, uh, we've we've been over some of this stuff before when we covered The Ghostwriter. Yes. Uh, good director, terrible human being. Yes. Um. I I think that what appeals to me most about this is the way that its characters completely collapse. Yeah. <laughs> they collapse in on themselves in the most finely tuned and spectacular fashion. And yeah. in doing so, they reveal themselves to be such unlikable people. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Awful. That's deeply unpleasant examples of human beings and they did it to themselves that's the mm. thing this is like this is similar to no exit by jean paul sartre in the sense that hell is other people these they're just doing it to themselves mm. like, I, I they would... could have left they they could have said okay well that's all written down that's all sorted well there are so many there are so many times where they're like on their way out the cowans <laughs> they're in the elevator he's in yeah. the elevator and, and they then just someone keep says, coming back. And it, then someone says, oh, would you like something to drink? It's like, no, we're like, leaving. Goodbye. I was screaming like at that, the- th- There were so many possible dismounts, but all of them <laughs> are so petty and all of them are so focused on these little bobs that they're throwing at each other that they can't let the other people leave. And I was just sitting there. I, 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 at one point, I actually screamed at the television, just go. <laughs> You're right Leave! there. Leave! Well, that's that's the thing. Obviously, there is a surface-level satire and comedy in the sense that, you know, they're dealing with this schoolyard brawl and they descend into one mm. themselves. Uh, it is just adolescent bullshit that they end up, you mm. know, going at each other over. But more broadly speaking, and it's something that the, the film really starts to delve into in the last third, but it's this idea of... Uh, as I said in my 30-second plot synopsis, the falsity of social graces, the thin mm. veneer of polite society, that these people could leave, but they don't want to. They really want to argue, really. they mm. like this is Their natural impulse is not to work it out all nicely. Their natural impulse is to twist the knife. And um, that's something that the movie starts to get into, the play starts to get into more philosophically in the third act. Mm. Um but is present from the start and, you know, is something that is deeply important to the foundation of the story, but becomes more and more interesting in a details way mm. as it stops even being about the conflict between their kid. It starts to splinter off into a whole bunch of different mm. little um bits of grievances that they have, not even with each other, but within the couplings themselves. And at every point where uh where someone tries to bring it back to focus, it just makes people angrier. Yeah. <laughs> and, like... 
All right, all right. Let me just ask you: the part that was most can't put his phone down. The part that was most intolerable for me was the passive aggression at the beginning. I can't stand it. I would extricate myself from that situation as fast as I possibly can. Who was who? This will be an interesting litmus test, I think. Who do you think was the character you liked the least? versus the character you liked the most. I'll give you guys both a minute to think about it, but I will say that it's easy as for me. Jodie Foster's character, I grew to really, really dislike as the the story went on, to the point where I just found her to be the most false, the most passive-aggressive, the least productive character out of all of them. And the, per- the character that I liked the least, because she was frankly the only one that behaved even approaching a human being, <laughs> was the Kate Winslet character. And I can't say the hamster. <laughs> no, you can't. Damn it. I can't, we can't say the kids, because they are technically no. characters in the film. Uh... The kid who hit the kid with the stick. No, the kid who got hit with the stick is my favourite character. You have to the choose from the four character. that are in the body of the piece. I have to choose between the four? Yeah. Oh, that's bullshit. Um... The most intolerable, I think, was, I don't know, probably John C. Riley's character for me. Because at the beginning, like, the moment he drops that facade, it's like, oh no, this is just a incredibly unpleasant person to be around. The fact yeah. that he, and it's trading off of John C. Riley's general affability, general energy when he's in movies, it's... He begins the movie as a John C. Riley character, but as the movie goes on, it's like, oh no, 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 he's playing this guy who is... You don't even understand why he's in this marriage to begin with. Yeah, uh, that is a good point. Like, I can see the Cowans being married, but the yeah. Jodie Foster and John C. Riley seem to, they like... They se- just seem completely in- uh, in- incompatible. Yeah. They seem to dislike each other, but be unable to admit it. Where at least the Cowans know what the state of their marriage is. You know, like the, the Cowans are like the Cowans weren't always like this, but with the with the other couple, I get the feeling they were always like this. Yeah, it's also interesting that neither couple can admit that they are fully at fault in this scenario. And it's like, well, at the end of the day, it comes down to nature versus nurture, but. By the end, Don't... we see that the two kids yeah. have reconciled and are fine They've with each They've worked it out themselves. They've worked it out themselves. Don't They're think I don't see you two trying to weasel out from answering my question. Come on. <laughs> I can tell you who the character who annoyed me most is and the character I had the most fun with is. See, I know all of us are going to say Christoph Waltz is the most fun character. Yes. Yeah. He is the most fun. Uh, but possibly the character... Yeah, I tend to agree with you on the Kate Winslet role. Um, she is the most understandable and tolerable. There are so many moments when she is basically begging to leave. Mm. And she's like, we yeah. can just go. We can go. That wins a lot of points in my book. Because she's trying to leave this situation, and it keeps getting dragged in by something that someone has said. But Probably the character I like the least, or I find the most false, would have to be Foster's character. Because you're going to get nowhere with her. Everyone else knows they're an asshole. Like, obviously, uh, John C. Riley's character... I- I've forgotten a lot of the first names. Um, John C. Riley's character is pretending to be an affable guy at the beginning. Christoph Waltz's character, Alan, just doesn't give a shit to begin <laughs> he's with. He's the same person throughout he's, the entire he's, film. He is 
honest about who he is. Yeah. Who he is is plain to see when he's on the phone he, to work. He has the most clear-eyed view of the entire situation and everyone in that room. Like, yeah, and that's like, why that's why he's the most fun to watch as an audience member because this is a guy without pretense. He knows he's he, un- he's, he's unscrupulous to begin yeah. with. He will also call the passive aggressiveness in yeah. ways well, that other people won't. He does take won't. part as yeah. well. Yeah, but he like, does it with a smile. He he's Christoph Waltz. He does it. The man and he read knows a phone he's book. doing it. I do like how. As it, as, like, he really wants to get out of there for the first third or so. But as it goes on and things start popping off, he actually becomes kind of entertained by it, and he actually is kind of... The moment John C. Riley's character just drops the pretenses, Alan is like, okay, I can have fun with yeah. this guy now. I love how... I love that little thing as he's, like, talking... And they, they've broken out the... um the scotch, scotch or something, and they're talking about one thing, and then he just breaks his monologue midstream to turn around to John C. Ryan and go, this is excellent scotch. scotch. Like, yeah. um, <laughs> like, the like, way that he just seems so much, so much more comfortable the the more um, base the situation becomes yeah. is very He's entertaining. Like devil. He, He's he the devil. He can't seem to... He can't stand the falseness. He can't... Stand that that's why he's so distant at the beginning yeah. from everything. Like he's an asshole. He knows he's an asshole. So the moment he just gets to be that openly, the more comfortable he is. Well, until his phone gets shit mixed. Yeah. I felt that in my soul. His reaction to that, I I empathize. The way that he was like, I spent hours setting it up. Everything's on that phone. But <laughs> like, you know what? Man, I'm I get ya. I kind like I I see where the Kate Winslet character is coming from because either oh, that's all it's hours constant. of every day, but like yeah. this is the daytime during a weekday. Yeah, um, <laughs> like oh yeah, he, he is. And, he's supposed to be at work. Yeah, he's supposed to to be doing this right now rather than this like bullshit circus sideshow that he's actually yeah. doing. And what and he not has that to what do he's it, doing by and what any he has means to do at is work morally is, correct. Like mm. his work is morally objectionable. Yeah. <laughs> He is trying to protect a pharmaceutical company uh, because yeah. they have terrible pills that do terrible things to old people. I love that extra little bit of detail that John C. Riley's mother has been taking that medication. <laughs> yeah. That is such a beautiful little grenade to throw into the room, but the grenade barely goes off when he's... because everyone gets sidelined by some other shit when he's on the phone with John C Riley's mother just his tone of voice is so demeaning oh yeah it's like, like it's 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 like the opening scene of inglorious bastards <laughs> like, but i i i do like what, how he's how and this is like a sliver of humanity from him he does say you should probably stop taking it for a while, though. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's like, it's is it, it's humanity, but it's also just like, he's got no skin in this game. It's not like he, like, earns a, earns a commission every time exactly. some old lady takes a pill. Like, like yeah. He's, a, he's an awful person, mm. but he also doesn't want people dead. He, he has a line, so he's like, 
yeah, you should probably stop taking it for a while. I mean, it doesn't super bother him. He'd sleep at night. He knows there's a whole bunch of people out there taking yeah. it. But oh, yeah. like, he's com- talking com- to the lady, so he's yeah. like confront. Eh. Like with the in the situation, he will actually just you know maneuver around it. He has no reason not to. It's it's the most it's the most offhanded way to save someone's life possible. Like but I also he, th- appreciate- he throws it to the side as if it doesn't even matter. Yeah. I I also appreciate the fact that. Over the course of the movie, and this is moving slightly away from that area of things, it in moments you see uh, these alliances get formed. Like when the phone gets donked into the flower pass, the women are on side with each other, laughing at the entire thing. And they form a slight alliance until that breaks apart. It's almost like watching pro wrestling in a sense. It's like, Okay, so they've joined together, but when is the other shoe gonna drop? When are Can they going they to turn coexist? on each other? When um, are they going to pull out the chairs and hit each other? I, I and I found like... that it turned into this battle of the sexes at certain points, but then the couples get back on each other's side, but then the couples are bickering against each other, and yeah. at it's certain all points of the... there are no allegiances. All of the little grievances that exist yeah. within a relationship start to bubble up i mean there's like just that little aside that you know no cigars in the house because the daughter has asthma and and they never light them yeah they just have them in the house um because i want to because john c wireless character's like yeah good point i want to tell you who the original cast was during this broadway run that it did Mm. um all of them were nominated for tony's uh but jeff daniels played the christoph waltz role Oh, okay, yes. that's good. Um, Hope Davis played the Kate Winslet role. Marsha Gay Harden played the Jodie Foster role, and James Gandolfini played the John C. Riley role. <laughs> and um, don't fuck with this guy, yeah. or you'll end up with. Well, that's the thing. Shoes. That's the thing is that after hearing that casting, I'm like, definitely for um the John C. Riley and the Jodie Foster role. It's like, yep, those are two actors who I would much prefer to see in that role. Which is not to say that Foster or John C. Riley do a bad job. It's just that Marsha Gay Harden and especially James Gandolfini in that role make that really interesting. Because like with James Gandolfini, that whole bit where Christoph Waltz is going up to him and like poking at him and asking him about his business and everything, there's so much more threat to it if it's James Gandolfini. I mean, mm. that he he had such a a way of mm. weaving between likable and watchable and really threatening mm-hmm. and i think that that's something that this movie doesn't have which i think it probably should is the nervousness that this altercation could turn physical mm. but mm. i do like how sort of sinister christoph waltz is all the yeah. time just his delivery That's just he's Christoph Waltz. His his delivery of certain lines is if he's looking down at an ant and he's like, I could pull your legs off. And I might, but just But you'll wait. never know until it's happening. Um what I would love I've... to see Nathan Lane in this. <laughs> what I have read about um about that that original performance, Marsha Gay Harden was the one that won the Tony, and my understanding of that original performance, uh having you know, read about people's reactions and what they didn't like about this movie was that the Marsha Gay Harden take on the character was that she is just full of rage. Like, 
this these people's kid hurt my kid and from the second yeah. that they are in her apartment it's like every fiber of her being wants to destroy them and their son and mm. she's just sort of barely containing that bubbling you know sort of simmering anger underneath and that's what fuels the whole way she approaches the situation it fuels the passive aggressiveness it fuels the way that all of the events from her perspective unfold um and i don't see that in jodie foster no yeah i, I think i see Foster's... a much weaker character i think you Foster's see it the weakest. bubbling to the surface but it's more just a moral indignation that it's come to blows this idea that it has devolved into something so primal and base seems to be the thing that irks her well i don't even think it's that i think and it's the thing that made her the character that frustrated me the most is that she is this character who goes through the motions who laps as what a you know progressive well-adjusted citizen of the world exactly and there's no substance beneath that it's just this fragile exterior that this Mm. just cracks under the slightest pressure and there's nothing else under it to support it it's Mm. just hollow like and i said this to john after we finished the movie is that's something that really annoys me in general i i understand having concern about world events but one must keep an appropriate distance from world events so they can tend to their more immediate sphere of influence. And I think there's that's missing from the character. She seems to build her personality around the issues that other people are having. Yeah, and not even out of like a genuine investment in it. But out, out of, of an a, interest? Out of our, out of our des- no, not even that, out of a desire to be seen mm. as... Mm being the embodiment of what a citizen of the world, as you say, um, should be. And that is, I think, the point of the movie, ultimately, and it's not just her character, it's these other characters as well, is that whole idea of the the um, fragility of that front-facing person that we all set ourselves mm. up as being. You know, where the people who will smile and nod and be polite to the people who we just want to smack. You know, mm. because they're they're driving us crazy. Like the the way that, as a society, as a culture, as a um, you know civilization, we have constructed uh, a way to suppress all of that undercurrent of um, of antisocial impulses that mm. is in all of us, and be- we do it because that's the only way that any of it all works. <laughs> Yeah. You know what I mean? It's it's the only way we can keep the machine well oiled and functioning. Yeah. Is with tamp it down, little boxes, little boxes. <laughs> but that there is a falsity to it. Mm. That we must be seen to say the right things and do the right things, even if it's not something we super care about or invested mm. in or even necessarily believe. But that is what we must do because that is the person, the identity that we've constructed to ourselves for ourselves and to be real about how we're feeling or how about how we want to behave is to expose the um expose the much less varnished much less ready for prime time parts of our own personality mm. that we have all agreed apparently must be suppressed 
There's a concept in sociology called performance, which is who you are by yourself is not always how you appear to other people. You perform differently in different circumstances. You act differently with different sets of people, some friends you act differently with as with others, you act differently in front of your parents than you do with friends, and you act differently at work than you do with either friends or family. That's not to say that any of these things are a lie, but it's a way that human beings have learned to compartmentalize the different facets of themselves. And what I see in this play, in this movie, is a severe failure of accomplishing that. Yeah. And the idea is so fascinating because one of the concepts that uh, Alan comes up with is the God of Carnage. The idea that he believes in a God that created the world and just fight it up from there, I guess, guys. Well, I don't even think it's a, it's a, like a literal God. I mean... Yeah. He, it's, it's, it's how he looks at society. It's how he conflict. looks at society. As conflict sort of a dog- theory is the way in which he views yeah. the world. Conflict theory being another sociological topic that discusses all human action as conflict. So the idea behind that is in every interaction, you want something. You either want to whittle away your time or you want to gain something from another person. Either, you know, good happy feelings or you want to get something over them that is broadly speaking what war comes down to the the conflict over resources land and the narrative itself and this is what we've got here conflict theory writ small and everything each of the characters do is about getting that final word getting that final something to be the winner in the conversation Yes, and conflict theory is a very helpful um, way to look at how narratives are written, because narratives that have protagonists, antagonists, heroes, and villains, that is the baseline of conflict theory. Barriers and people trying to get through these barriers. And this is sort of the encapsulation of that idea in play form. Um, and that's something that you know the third act really becomes, and it... it- bundles up so much other stuff there's definitely an interesting discussion of um of masculinity Mm. versus femininity Mm. the way that they pair up against the partners the partners pair up against sorry the men pair up against the women Mm. against their own partners i do love how um the the men are talking about how they had little gangs when they were young the whole ivanhoe ivanhoe uh John Wayne. John Wayne thing, and that immediately collapses when the phone goes in the drink, mm. and he's panicked, he's crumpled on the floor, he's devastated that this little device is destroyed. To be fair, I wouldn't be much different in that scenario. Yeah. But well, that's the thing, is that- I it, love how- I love how- Kate I would be slightly more okay, because the iPhone 15 is actually pretty well rated for- its ability to be underwater for short periods of time. But, so, but I would be slightly better in I, that scenario, but... I do know. love how, like, she starts laughing, and then she goes into a little thing about how she had the John Wayne ideal of masculinity, too. That a man is someone who's tough, strong, gets things sorted out. Not crumpling up the ground, 
the moment something is broken. Yeah. And that's that's an interesting little nugget there too. Well, it interrogates that idea that, you know, there's that, that version of ourselves that we present to everyone else, but there's also a version that we present to ourselves mm. that is the, the idealized version that we mm. uh, consider ourselves to be. This is the type of person that I am. This is the type of person that, you know, I will be is what I believe and how I act. But when... This is how over- I would act in this situation. Yeah, but when that is overtaken by events... Um, that becomes, you know, all of your flaws, the stuff that you don't consider or you try not to consider about yourself, your weaknesses. You know, mm. it takes a very self-aware person to be cognizant of that within mm. themselves. But I also love the hypocrisy. Like, she loses her shit laughing the moment she kills the phone and drowns it, but loses her mind the moment that Jodie Foster yeets her bag into the roof Spilling her shit everywhere. Mm. And well, Jodie Foster as well with the um the vomit smeared <laughs> book. um books. You gotta you gotta air that out. Don't bother with the uh aftershave. That's not gonna do a damn thing. Uh, the best thing to do is just flatten it out and dry it's it. It's gonna help handle the smell, but at the at this mm. point, you're using it. You're putting lipstick on a pig. The Cronus aftershave is just permeating through the room. Can I tell you a theory that I had about that whole thing with the vomit and Mm. everything? I think that the Kate Winslet character is pregnant. I think that they know it too, the Cowans. Because Because he does say, you shouldn't be drinking in your condition. Exactly. And it's not Mm. like he's trying to stop her from drinking before. Like, he's very much like, no, don't pour her one, don't pour her one. Um, Mm. And... It's all of that stuff that I think – I think that there's little hints at it, and I think that that's one of the reasons that she goes so manic is it's just, like, all this bundle of, like, you know, that this is this is already so hard, and now, Christ, there's another one. Mm. Um, I think that that runs through it. Like, and the fathers don't like their kids. No. Well – I don't know. Christoph Waltz seems like he might like his. <laughs> like well, he thinks he's he's um, a lunatic, but uh, like I don't think that he there's can necessarily. It. Yeah, like he seems to like, and that's the other thing that you know makes him much more entertaining as an org- mm. as an audience uh, surrogate throughout this whole exchange is that he's the guy who's actually self-aware or as self-aware as anyone in this movie is i don't Mm. think anyone is particularly self-aware but he is the one who's actually like no um i'm kind of an asshole and my son's a lunatic and these people who i'm dealing with are absolutely intolerable and passive aggressive constantly and Mm. there's there's a willingness to call a spade a spade that i think makes him an appealing character to us as audience members well Um, it's also just the the sort of magnetism of christoph waltz yeah, yeah, like looking down on other people, which is just fun to watch. But at the same time, that also like, I do think that it's much easier to picture the Cowans as to understand why they are together. Yeah, than mm. it is to understand why the others are. Because um, um, yeah, I don't get it. They're so diametrically different. Yeah, and John C. Reilly's character, you know, he's voting Trump. He's going to tell his wife that he votes for Biden, but he's voting for Trump. Oh, John C. Riley's character. Yes, I'm oh, sorry. I was still hung up on Christoph Waltz. I think Christoph Waltz is just sort of a wild card. 
Yeah, it's hard th- to know with him. Yeah. I think he does a donkey vote. <laughs> I don't to... think he votes. I think he's just like... No, you know. I think he goes to the polling station and draws a terrible picture <laughs> on it. <laughs> just to add some chaos into the mix. He writes in, like... Or probably votes libertarian or something, mm, I don't know. Most likely. Um, But yeah, like, the... Yeah, I... I Oh, you know for a fact that Jodie Foster's character voted Jill Stein. <laughs> I was about to say that. <laughs> it's a very... A very interesting dynamic that the mm. play and the movie, obviously, is always very carefully constructing. And that's one of the reasons why I think that it supports that reading that I have that mm. um, the Cowans are going to have another kid, is that I think that there's enough little detail like that um, to open up all of mm. these possibilities for the characters. These are three-dimensional characters who don't just exist mm. for the time that we see them. We get hints of a, of something beyond that, of the people that they are when they're mm. not on screen. I, I do like... There is one moment that I noticed where Alan was about to be furious. Like, he was holding back legitimate anger. Was when um, John C. Riley and Jodie Foster were making fun of the pet name Doodle. Mm. Like, he was legitimately angry. You yeah. could see it in his eyes. He was like, oh, don't you... Mm. And the moment John C. Riley started singing the show team, he was like, that's not helping. Well, yeah, like, that's the thing, is that I would I would maybe even go so far as to say that the Christoph Waltz character... the Chris, Well, the Cowans, are, I would say, actually like each other. Mm. I think that he annoys the hell out of her, but I think that they like each other. Yeah. Mm. But ironically, I think that the Christoph Waltz character is the person who feels the most unvarnished affection for his partner out mm. of all four of them. Yeah, um, most likely. Can I, I? I do want to talk a little bit about that opening and closing thing with the um with the boys that we see them he out. Just gets them right in the face. Yeah. Knocks um, some teeth out. Damn. There, in the writing I, I came across about this film, um, it made the point, and I agree with it after thinking about it, that those scenes shouldn't be in the movie. Mm. They're not in the play. And what they do is give the audience too much of a too much information about too what Too much happened. context, yeah. It gives it too much context. And instead of it being focused through the biases of these two pairs of parents and their own neuroses essentially. Um, it gives us too much of an image of what actually went down. It gives us the objective view, yeah. which I understand why they chose to do that. I get that. It lets us be above the whole thing. But we're already above the whole thing as the audience. Yeah, and like, I think it, we're, we're, like... Yeah, we're watching these arseholes be arseholes lose their shit. Well, we know things now that we didn't know before. We yeah. know, for instance, that... Um, I can't just keep calling them Jodie Foster and John C. Riley. It's, it's too much of a, a uh, too clunky. It's uh, the Longstreet's. We know that the yeah. Longstreet's son is actually the one who initiated the physical contact by pushing the Cowan's son. But equally, we know that the um, no, no, it's the Cowan's son who initiated right by pushing the Longstreet's son. But we also know that it's true that the Longstreet son has this whole gang of mm. kids. Um, and there's just ways that it weights the scenario and gives confirmation to things that on stage 
are left entirely as the um you know the heightened angry recountings yeah. of what these little you know 12 year old kids told their parents to get the most sympathy yeah <laughs> um I, yeah, yeah. I, I understand that yeah i, I agree mm. but part of me also likes the confirmation that the hamster's okay yeah that I- whole hamster thing gets why would you throw that out there in conversation that you just left a <laughs> hamster on the sidewalk because <laughs> mr longstreet is both an idiot and an asshole he just See, also ha- yeah he just also you- happens to be afraid of anything low to the ground you called um, Alan Cowan the devil. I think that Longstreet is much more the devil because, uh, you know, there's just a level of, I don't know, his character seems the most abrasive. Mm. Mm. And he um, has the devil's curly hair. <laughs> <laughs> He's, he is uh, slightly rocking in a razor head look. Just oh, slightly. And I, don't, I don't appreciate the conversation he starts about uh, what was the dish they were having? Cobbler. Cobbler? Cobbler, yeah. Cobbler is not a pie. Cobbler's okay? not a cake. I don't li- it's certainly no. not a- it's not a cake or a pie. It is a dessert. It's closer to it's a, a pie. It, it's more Oof. akin to a pie for sure, but it's not a- well, certainly you, not a cake. If, well, sure, but if you want to get into this, then what is the difference between a sandwich and a burger? The burger. But what is the burger? It's just- it's just bread. The patty- the burger is patty the is the burger. That is why so a grilled by that, chicken by that, burger is a grilled chicken sandwich. Okay. So by but then we also use other things like grilled But what are you talking about, Harley? We have grilled chicken burgers all over the place. We call them yeah, burgers but, here in Australia. But what I'm talking about is the etymology of the word burger is dependent entirely on its contents. The burger patty. That's why it's called a burger patty. of a burger. In the broadest definition, and because this is a whole thing that an entire podcast could be about, in the broadest definition, this is coming from www.eatbunslut.com. Uh, <laughs> well, what? yes. Definitely our the most academic of sources I'm sorry, for discussing the etymology. I need you to say that yeah, it's website's name again. Eat bun slot. Bun slot. That's what the name of the website is. Bun slot. Okay, so whether is it or not telling, a burger is a sandwich. Is it telling to? Is it telling me to eat a bun because it's calling me a slut? Or is the bun a slut? I don't know. But it has what is a burger? Well, first let's define what a burger is. A burger typically consists of a patty of ground beef, such a of ground meat, such as beef, chicken, or turkey, placed between two halves of a bun. The burger may also be topped with an addi- with additional ingredients such as cheese, lettuce, tomato, onion, and condiments like ketchup or mustard. What is a sandwich? A sandwich is a dish made of two or more slices of bread with a filling sandwiched in the middle. So you can have a burger patty, apparently, on two pieces of bread, and that technically counts but as a sandwich. You're literally just describing a burger. It's okay. Okay. <laughs> two slices. Two slice- pieces of bread. It's two pieces of bread. Slices with- of bread. Lawson. Slices of bread. What is not the burger bun? What is buns. a burger, okay, is a okay, burger bun if not a single bun sliced in half? Okay, let's it's move the fact from that. that it's a bun, not that it is sliced okay, pieces okay, of a okay. loaf of bread. Let's, let's move that from that. That is what the point is. This entire <laughs> okay. thing is about semantics. Okay, the yeah, categories. But the word um, burger is 
a, a derivation of the word hamburger, which comes from it being uh, originating in Hamburg. Don't so you mean I don't know where grilled, this. Don't like, you mean I, steamed hams? I don't know where your your Look, argument, Harley, okay. that it is based around a meat patty comes from. Okay. Fine. What does what does eat burger slut say about this, John? That, okay, that's what I said. I just there. went through that for okay, you. Let's let's move on from there. <laughs> okay, I'm going. The to, worst I'm the worst semantical is argument a a pie. is okay. The worst semantical argument is that is people calling cereal a soup. It's not. It is much closer to a porridge than a soup. Yeah, I'll go with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because you know, a soup is you know the process of cooking it's a process of adding Thank ingredients you. whereas with a cereal it's like you just it's you know it, it's it's like saying that a cup of tea is a soup mm. thank you i don't know what, where people get off getting that wrong cobblers are calling a hot dog a sandwich which it's not this but moving on this comes from a more reasonable i think website name fine dining lovers okay history Much of more appreciated than eat bun slut <laughs> Cobblers are thought of are thought to have evolved from British suet puddings, which are savory or sa- sweet or savory puddings made with flour and suet. The most famous example being the traditional Christmas pud. I okay. editorialized with pud. When British That's colonists fair. began settling in the U.S., they made mm. impoverished versions of their favorite dish using whatever ingredients they had to hand, resulting in the cobbler several and several regional variants, including slump. Pan Downy, Sonka, Brown Betty, and Grunts. Grunts? That's <laughs> like a, the sound. That's right. a regional variation. Let me ask you this. Okay. So if you had all of the fillings of a burger, right? Okay, but, we're not going to get back onto that, you put, But you put them between two pieces of white bread. Is it still a burger or has it become a sandwich? That's a sandwich according to burger slot or bun slot. Okay. So if you had... Okay, but then we have stuff like salad burger, right? So if you had like a salad sandwich and you took all the fillings from a it's salad sandwich, you put them between burger buns. It's the fact that it's confined within a bun. The fact that no, the con- not... contents are confined within the okay, bun makes it a move. burger. But what let's... is a bun okay. if not bread? You know it's what a, a bun is. It's a preparation. Let's and then how do we get... Well, then yeah, how do we also... How do we get like please. the distinction between a, a loaf of bread and a sub versus, you know, a hot dog um, bun also... I mean, at a certain point, it is just filling between pieces of bread. We could go on about this forever, but... One thing we can all agree on, though, is that cobblers are not pies. It's more of a it's, pudding. It's akin to a pie, but it you don't need to put it in a specific... Look, it's more of a pudding, which is kind of the middle ground between cake and pie. It's kind of a fruit pie, but it's different. Pies are made of pastry rather than biscuit batter. And are fully encased, while cobblers only have that as a topping on it. Bingo. So it, it's definitely not a cake, but it's it, not a pie not. either. I don't know why he even brought up cake as yeah, it's part of that argument to, to begin cake. with. It's not even close. Yeah. Anywho, people are terrible. What kind of dessert is a cobbler? It's kind of like um. What family does it exist in? See, th- we need closer to pudding. We need some brainiac to create a. A genus chart. genus chart or a species chart for oh, foods. Oh, 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 I'm sorry, but um, the original version, the original definition of cobbler dating way back in, uh, where was this? It's a man who makes shoes. 1850s. <laughs> yes, Holly. 
Uh, this website is terrible layout. I believe they call it um, cobbler because it's cobbled together. Mm. Was defined in 1859 in John Russell Bartlett's Dictionary of Americanisms as a sort of pie baked in a pot lined with dough of great thickness upon which the fruit is placed. According to the fruit, it is an apple or a peach cobbler. Is he not at that point just making an honest-to-God pie if it's got a base to it? Well, if it's a base of a certain thickness, then it's... Then it just becomes a pie. Then it merely becomes a pie. The one the cobbler it, here it clearly has to no be a base because Jody Foster says as much. It becomes an enclosed concave pastry with a filling of apples and pears. That's just an apple and pear pie. Yeah. Alright, I'm pulling the plug. If- <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we've reached the end of this conversation. So uh why don't we now move on to recast oh, Carnage? Just one more thing about the cobbler. I definitely think the cobbler is the thing that made her throw up. That and the anxiety. Uh, everyone else is fine, though. Mm. Might be just sensitive because of the pregnancy. I can understand that a cobbler, you know... I'm not a cobbler guy. That's not guy. fresh would do I, that. I'm not so. a cobbler guy. Get you, get fruits away from my desserts. Desserts. Like, uh, uh, fruit... Do you like apple pie? No. No, not really. What's wrong with you? I, I can do... See, I, I like can, a banana cake. See, I don't like caramelized apple. That's the thing. I don't like how you can see the. I like a raspberry pie of it. Like, I something so it's like, not a taste thing. It's that you can see the fibers. Oh, it, it's the taste it's as well. It's a texture thing for me. Like, I just don't okay. dig on it. I can do like strawberry in a cake. I can do certain things in a cake, but a raspberry a raspberry pie is good. Yeah, it, it, there's something just about the consistency that I don't. Like about cooked apple, the, the apple or and the pear. I uh, I only like pears and apples yeah. and nashi fruits when they are as they are as a thing. Normally, when they're crisp, when prepared apple is not yeah mm, my thing for texture. Well, as illuminating as I'm sure this twenty minutes has been to our listeners, um, let's now move on to uh, recast this movie with Muppets for the. The Muppet Carnage. <laughs> the Muppets um, do Carnage. My suggestion here is that... Uh, the Muppets do New York by way of France. <laughs> my suggestion here is that you keep Christoph Waltz and Kate Winslet and you recast Jodie Foster <laughs> and John C. Riley with Kermit and Miss Piggy. <laughs> yes. Okay. Okay. I, I, I'm just I picturing Kermit being like, you know, my wife's dressed me up as a liberal. <laughs> yeah. My I, wife dressed me up as a liberal. I can't stand this PC shit. I do love the... <laughs> it's it's a different kind of character for Kermit to play. It's a different and Kermit. It, it, it like, stretches his range a bit. And, I mean, uh, Miss Piggy is just playing Miss Piggy. But it gives Kermit a bit yeah. of range. And he gets to work alongside two Oscar winners. So, yeah, I, not, I have no problems with that. Not a fan of the Muppets working with Polanski, though. Take Polanski it would, out of though, the it, it would, however, <laughs> be um, a reunite, them reuniting with Christoph Waltz following his yes. cameo True. in Muppets Most Wanted. Of course. Wasn't Kate... Working relationship with the Muppets. Wasn't Muppets. Kate Winslet in one of them? I don't think no, so. No, I don't think so. You might be thinking of someone else. You're thinking of that time she was in those Divergent movies. <laughs> <laughs> That's still very fun. That is still very funny to me. <laughs> We're definitely covering Divergent, though. We're going to cover Divergent when we get to it. Oh, absolutely. You've mentioned definitely. it too many times for us to not do it. Oh, if nothing else, it is 
wonderfully illustrative of the face plant that the young adult <laughs> fantasy genre took in the realm of, of cinema. The moment Harry yeah. Potter ended, the grave train and stopped. Well, no, it, uh, all did, of the Hunger Games down. came yeah, out after that, Harry yeah, Potter did. It wound down of the Hunger Games. And the Maze Runner did manage to get over the line. Mm. Barely. I think... You know, in the end, it's Stranger Things is the thing that cements it. Okay, this is all going to be on TV now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Um, so now why don't we move on to say who our MVP is for this movie, what our favorite scene or sequence is, and, of course, who we would recast with this podcast's patron saint, character actor, John Lithgow. Knock, knock! Who's there? <laughs> Me! I will start us off and I will say that my MVP for this movie is a tie between Christoph Waltz and Kate Winslet. I think they work really well together. They are incredibly entertaining. They dive into the material in a way that is so satisfying to watch just to see these two actors really get some great stuff and to do it justice. Um, And uh, I know it's weird to say I'm siding with any of these people, but I'm siding with them more than I'm siding with the Longstreets, <laughs> mm. you know? And I think a big part of that is to do with the performances and the comparative miscasting, in my view, of Riley and Foster. Mm. Um, so I'm going to go with them. In terms of my favourite scene or sequence, I'm going for the stretch once the booze comes out. Once uh, things really do start to get a bit wild um, and they're no longer just two couples squaring off against each other but they start to divide up within those pairings and you know any sense of allegiance marital allegiance breaks down um and everyone's just getting progressively drunker and drunker especially poor old kate winslet who's on an empty stomach um that is the most entertaining the most fiery the most um you know just just sort of purely intense part of the film and so i'm going to go with that Mm. In terms of who I would recast with this podcast, patron saint character actor John Lithgow, I am going to go with Alan Carwin, the uh, Christoph Waltz character, because we all identified it as the most entertaining mm. um, character to watch in the film. And I think that it would give John Lithgow a lot of interesting and entertaining and fun and funny stuff to delve into in much the same way that Christoph Waltz and... Uh, Jeff Daniels seem pretty tailor-made for that blend of humour with steel. Um, I think that that's something that Lithgow matches quite well there also. Especially, it definitely matches it a lot better than the John C. Riley character. Uh, so I'm going to go with that. So for me, I have to give my MVP to Christoph Waltz pretty directly. I think he understood the assignment he is taking as many opportunities as he can during the script to just have a good time with it. And it's not very often you can do a closed space, closed space, closed time movie. There are edits here, of course. But I tend to think that I would be interested to know if they shot this in sequence or not. Because I could understand how exciting of an acting exercise that could be if they shot in sequence. Um... I just think Christoph Waltz is having a blast. He is the most entertaining character there. And a lot of that not only comes from his lines, but from his delivery. That sort of snide, superior, fully asshole-embracing nature uh, just goes a long way to his character being the most entertaining. Still a piece of shit, but entertaining nonetheless. 
Uh, my favorite scene or sequence, I have to agree, it's when the, it's when the scotch comes out. And in particular, the little moment that the two blokes have where they say, it's damn good scotch. Like, it's those, it's those little asides where they speak up in support of each other at certain moments that are most interesting to me. Because at the end of the day, this looks like four assholes, let's be frank, really letting a lot of things go. Like, this sort of frustration and anger has built up over quite a long time. And while this is the most embarrassing and awful day of their lives, as they continuously repeat, this is possibly also their most cathartic. Um, and that all starts when the drinks come out. Um, who would we cast with John Lithgow? Part of me thinks Michael Longstreet, the John C. Riley role, because he could definitely play the sort of affable goofball father, sort of blue-collar worker guy, but also have that chain shapeshift into a truly unpleasant, unlikable dickhead. And I think putting him up against Walt would really, really work, because they're really, really strong performers. And I think that Lithgow has a better sense of restraint than John C. Riley does. I think with the long streets, both Foster and uh, Riley. The issues with performance come with the lack of restraint. I think both performers do a little too much. And I think Lithgow, Lithgow has the ability to sort of pull that back a little bit and sort of think it through a little bit more. Um, of course, he also comes to the bat with stage experience, quite a lot of stage experience. He spent most of his career doing, uh, you know, stuff on the stage and live theatre before he went into screen acting so we could bring that to the table um yeah john what about you for my mvp it's christoph waltz he seems to be having the most fun because his character allows for him to have fun he is the most entertaining thing about this movie because he's able to go in so many directions and he has some of the best moments in the entire <laughs> show for my favorite scene or sequence again it's when the alcohol comes out that it manages to loosen things, and people get a lot more willing to air their dirty laundry, and more willing to throw shit at each other, and just really get everything out in the open. This could be the most cathartic moment of their life, or this could be just the the moment that defines what their relationships are going to be from here on. I, I think... Definitely couples counselling is necessary for the long streets, if not a separation. Uh, but the Cowans also might need to deal with Christoph Waltz's phone addiction. Mm. I Can you imagine if his character had an iPhone? You'd never see him. <laughs> He'd never get anything done. For who I got John Lithgow as, I agree with Lawson that he would be very, very good as Alan Cow Cowan. Because... He's able to have that sort of uppity, better-than-everyone nature. It lets him have fun. It lets him be the most entertaining part of the film. It lets him just basically be this person on the sidelines, needling and needling until he gets thrown in to the deep end. And yeah, that's why I think John Lithgow would be a good pick. Obviously, if I wanted John Lithgow in this movie, I would get rid of Roman Polanski. Uh, because there's nothing really that Polanski's 
doing here that feels like everything good here is coming from the script and the actors. I'm not seeing much of a director's hand in this film. It well, I, that comes with the and, sort of format. Yeah, any of the any script. number of directors I think could have put this film together. Because it's really all there on the page. So now we're going to put it to a vote, whether or not we are a pro-Carnage podcast or not. Lawson, why you cast your vote first? Uh, I found myself in the same dilemma back when we um, did The Ghost Rider, uh, that if this was directed by someone other than a you know, self-admitted statutory rapist who's been on the run for 40 years... And who has uh, also prob- had multiple other allegations against him. Yeah. I'd probably say yes if it was directed by someone else. I very much like this movie. I think it's incredibly well written. I think it's largely well acted. I have a lot of fun watching it. Um, but, you know, th- there is sometimes just extra context that means you can't get there. Like, I can separate the art from the artist, and I believe I said this the last time. I can separate the art from the artist, but, um, you know, putting a Roman Polanski movie on our line of uh, of... Deluxe Blu-rays. Deluxe Blu-rays, exactly, is maybe a bridge too far. Then again, Don't like it's him up be, on the board. If we, if we ever do Rosemary's Baby, that's going to be a real difficult vote. Mm. Although, you know, kind of like that was before all of that stuff. I mean, maybe that fits into the same like um, the same kind of logic that we've used when we've done Brian Singer movies, that all of that stuff was before all of his crime or alleged mm. crime. Um, but... Uh, for this, it's at still least. muddy water. Yeah, for this at least, people should have known better than to give yeah. Roman Polanski a platform. Uh, for me, this should have been a separate director because this script really sings. It really sings, and the cast is, for the most part, really strong. And it's a very fascinating story. But why did it have to be Polanski? Like, I'm not gonna lie and say he's not a strong director. That would be silly to say. He is a strong director but he's an objectionable person and i'm not going to take a treaty on human kindness from an admitted sex offender i'm sorry i'm just not and while i do like the movie i do enjoy it it's got a polanski shaped x right on its cover <laughs> and, and like, the other as thing we is were too, watching it they show a Roman Polanski film directed by Roman Polanski twice in the first few minutes, and it's like, you could have sandwiched well, that in just, between people. That's just credits. I know, yeah. I know. But it's the but first it's like, thing you see, and it... Always yeah. get that vanity credit. It's a shadow over the whole it's thing. It's a shadow over the whole thing. I would love to see this on stage, mm. even though my anxiety would probably compel me to run out of the room as fast as I possibly Honestly, can. Honestly, this is the kind of thing that I would love to direct. I I have ideas of staging and ideas of <laughs> ways to do this. Mm. There was a, in um, my mind. There was a staging of it done at the Ad Astra Theatre a few years ago. Ooh. Uh, but yeah, I think I'm going to have to give this uh, an ambivalent at this point. I would love to see Let's Go do this on stage. He'd be brilliant. Um, John, what about you? Yeah, I'm ambivalent because of all the reasons stated, the Polanski of it all. I just can't in good conscience give it the pro because of Polanski. And yeah, it'd be different if it was a different director, but there there was always going to be a bit of a check mark against this movie simply because of that. And the fact that these actors should have known better too. Oh yeah. 
at, at this point because he had already admitted it by that point. He had said objectionable things in interviews that he did around the time of the accusation in the court case. The fact that he ran from... He's been on the run for like the fact that over he's 20 been years on the by the point this movie four, comes out. Over 40 over years. Over 30. Yeah. Yeah, I think for so many years and has spoken about how it's a thing that happened. These actors should have known better. But at the end of the day, it's a very well put together film. The actors all do, in my mind, a great job at creating these characters, though a few moments could have been shifted about. It's a good movie with some big issues surrounding its creation. So uh, it's an ambiv- ambivalent for me. So. There you have it. We are not a pro-carnage podcast. Aww. So, if you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at Exit Through the Kennedy Cardiac, which on myself on the bright side. You can also reach us through our Twitter, which is best place to give us episode-specific feedback and movie recommendations. What do you think about Carnage? What do you think about Roman Polanski? And what do you consider to be a burger? And where do you land on the... Uh, pie-pudding-cake dichotomy for Cobbler. Uh, it's not really that big a thing here in Australia. Australia, it's more no, of an American and British thing. We stick to the more well-defined food groups. Uh, what's the difference between apple cobbler and apple crumble? That's Good even point. that's even worse. I think they're basically the. Is it because the is it because crumble is meant to be a bit finer? I don't know. They seem like the know. same thing. Like crumbled stuff atop cooked hmm. apple and pear with custard. Hmm. It's, it's hard to discern. What is your favorite fruit-based dessert food? Uh, mine would have to be a banana split. I quite like banana with ice cream. Uh, you can also like, rate, comment, share, and subscribe on your podcast of choice. Do keep in mind that on certain podcast apps, you are commenting on the show on the whole and on others on specific episodes. If you are using a service such as Apple Podcasts that comment on the show on the whole, do... Uh, cite the name and possibly number of the episode you're referring to. We've done, you know, over 209 of these things by this point, and it all tends to blend together after a while. Uh, so do cite the specific episode you are referring to in your comment if you have one. Most people use... But please do like, rate, comment, share, and subscribe. In the Robot Run world, the play God of Carnage has become quite popular, in fact. We have multiple different dioramas staging certain portions of the play. As I've said before, the machines have a great deal of admiration towards live theatre. So uh, many of the different dioramas scattered across the world depict theatre shows. And in a broader sense, all of the dioramas are live theatre in their own regard. Oh, okay. So so the difference between a cobbler and a crumble is crumbles are more fine. It is more it doesn't have oats and the mixture is crumbled on top of the fruit before baking whereas for a cobbler the topping is put more on biscuity. after it's more biscuity it's more solid and uh, yeah that that makes sense that makes sense yeah that tracks yeah just looking at a also, picture of them side by side you can see a proper difference between the two also the machines they can't do apple they just there's something about the acidity of the apple that just not doesn't want, I not thought it would them. be any un... I said, you know, Steve Jobs and that walled garden idea, you know, mm. didn't, doesn't have universal compatibility. The, the undying yeah. loyalty <laughs> that they have towards Google and Android. Mm. Most machines are Microsoft-based services, so... Yeah, that makes sense. You know. 
So, Lawson, so, what have you got cooking for next week? week? Hopefully not Cobbler, because you know I don't like it. Um, well, next week we will be doing a very, very grim film, but one that I think that uh, you might have seen before. I'm not sure. Uh, it is the 2011 adaptation of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, directed by David Fincher. Um, have you guys seen it before? I think so. It would have been a while ago. I'm familiar with the score. You might have watched that or one of the various other associated projects. Because um, it is based on a book. I might have seen something yeah. from one of the other adaptations. Yeah, you might have been watching it one day when home sick from school or something. I vaguely remember that. Mm. Um, but I don't think I've ever sat down or watched any of those uh, projects before. So this will be interesting exercise. Well, if you were in Australia, you can find it available for purchase or rental on the Amazon, Telstra, Apple, and YouTube stores, and Fet store as also. Uh, but you can also find it available for streaming on the MGM channel on Amazon Prime. Right now. So, there you have it. Join us next week for when we discuss The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. The David Fincher version, of course. But until then, I've been Ollie Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been and will continue to be Jean Lewis. 